Well, a few months ago, when Jason first told me uh, he would be leaving our church potentially uh, to take another position at another church, I had several thoughts. I'm sure you did as well. One of the things that entered my head was this, that for the last five and a half years that I've been a pastor here with Jason, um, because of the co-pastor model and the way we shared things, I've really given almost no thought to attendance numbers or giving numbers. And when they were low, um, I just only figured it was less than half my fault. <laughs> so, and Jason was here first, so it obviously was, was more his fault than mine. So I'd never thought about those. I'm, I'm just being silly. But the announcement that Jason, one of our pastors, would be leaving was an opportunity, at least in my own heart, for fears that had been down there somewhere in the bottom to bubble up to the surface. Now is it all my fault? (laughs) Um, I don't think so. But perhaps you've had fears or concerns as well as Jason announced and, and has now moved on. Maybe there was a bad transition in your past of a pastor and or a scandal perhaps even, there's no scandal here, but just what all it meant. So I can say this, I have been encouraged over the last few months uh, to just kind of have my eyes opened and watching and noticing that at this church, so many people are connected to this church in so many ways, that's a good thing, and that so many people here at this church are excited about all of us going forward, which is also a good thing. Before I dive into the sermon, I want to take about 10 minutes, it might be a few minutes more than that, but about 10 minutes to share with everyone what has happened and what will be happening here at our church, um, which means the sermon will be shorter than normal, um, so you can thank me for that as well. And everything I say this morning, I'm probably going to re-say something very similar next week with, with a holiday weekend and people traveling. I just want to make sure that as many people as possible are clue, clued into where um, things are heading. Some of you are getting married next week and I presume won't be here. Um, so I just want everybody to feel clued in. I know last week and this week there are first-time visitors and are going, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but hopefully in a few minutes you will. So whether you've been here a long time or a short time, uh, let, let me share a bit. So Pastor Jason, um, last week, last Sunday was last week, and I saw him a few times during the week as a staff. We went out for a lunch just to celebrate things, and he just mentioned, I'll just encourage you a couple times to me, how blessed and encouraged he felt last week at this church, uh, both on Sunday morning and then as we came out, uh, many of us as a church in the evening, just to encourage him uh, and sort of make fun of him a little bit as well. He loved all of that and felt very blessed, the whole family. But I want to back up. When Jason first called me, this was probably six and a half years ago, I don't know, something like that, and said, would you be interested in coming to community to be one of the pastors? I said, no. (laughs) Now I'm here, so things changed. But that was the initial reaction because the roots I was putting down at the church I was at, really newly planted roots, it felt wrong uh, to do anything but push them down further, especially to yank them up. 
So I just said, you know, if God's going to change something, then he's going to have to be the one to do it. And he did, slowly. But what got me to move here, and, and, and I mean this is no offense to Harrisburg or to community, uh, it wasn't Harrisburg or community. Um, because I didn't know you. I was from the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest. I had never been east of Illinois, which is not very far east. I think maybe once I went to Indiana. Um, so I, I just didn't know. I didn't have a context. I thought Harrisburg could be great. Community could be great. I could f- enjoy both and, and f- you know, love in a sense. And, and I have gone, it, things have gone that direction. But at first, I just didn't know. But what excited me was a context for ministry that its hallmark was in partnership. Um, A pastoring and a preaching that stressed, it's not about this guy or that guy, but it's about Jesus. Like that's what got me to move across the country because at the time I was in Tucson, Arizona, pastoring a a, a church there. And um, one of the dreams of moving to that church was that there would be a partnership there in our teamwork and our preaching and our pastoring. And I just, I don't want to go into all the reasons, but it wasn't working out. And it hadn't been working out for over a year when Jason called. So at the time, Jason called and said, you know, there's this church you don't know anything about, but we've been friends for 15 years. What would it mean to come and serve here in a co-pastor model? I thought, well, that could be neat. And then I heard about this thing you have here called Pastor-Elders, which is a very strange title, uh, but I... It endeared me to this church. So we, as a leadership of this church, we take this title, pastor and elder, which often, I don't think in the Bible are two separate things, but often in church culture, they are two separate. Like the pastors are the ones that are come see you in the hospital, and the elders are the ones who come into a meeting once a month and make decisions. And this church weds those two together, and I thought, well, that sounds neat. Sounds like what I see in the Bible. And so for the last five years, the outworking of our principles of partnership has been this co-pastor model and a pastor-elder board. And as we've talked over the last few, so I'll I'll just say this real quick. So so for the last, this co-pastoring has meant that Jason was a senior pastor and I was a senior pastor, which was very strange every time I tried to explain that to people. It still feels a little strange. But with him leaving, uh, I'm still co-pastor, senior pastor, leader, you know, lead pastor. There's just no more co-pastor. And as we've been talking about this as a pastor elder board and what to do as we go forward, I can can just candidly say I would love for us to be able to still go forward in a co-pastor model where week in, week out, there's an alternating of preaching and and whatnot. I just don't think we're going to be able to do it. And and not because we couldn't do it, all things being equal, but because doing a co-pastor model means for the two people to do it well, which I think, it's not just me saying it went well, I think many people that have been here for a while have said, that actually went pretty well. It meant that there's a unity, a friendship, a prior ministry context over time, a battle-testedness, so to speak, of that friendship. And we have those things with Jason and I. It's just way too much authority to just share to someone who's an unknown. And as I've reached out and called and talked to a few friends that I know that have those same things, they could be great co-pastors here, I'm just not sure any of them have the freedom right now to move in a way that I did at the time. And that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing for one pastor to stay in one church for a long time. I think that's a great thing. The other challenge would have been 
that when I came here as a co-pastor, I wasn't being compared to anyone. Like, I'm sure you compared me to Jason. I'm sure, uh, you know, Jason was compared to me, and that's fine. But there wasn't a previous co-pastor that I had to, like, be compared to constantly. And so someone could come here as a co-pastor, and it could work out. It could be great. But there's not a blank slate. So there would be an added challenge. So all that to say, I don't think we'll be able to have the outworking of our partnership principle in a co-pastor model. But I am still passionate about seeing us move forward in a, as a church with a culture that values partnership, especially at the leadership level. And that's for lots of reasons. For starters, it's the reason I moved here. But I don't want to just make it about me. I really believe partnership is biblical. We're studying First and Second Thessalonians this summer. I know we haven't studied it yet. We'll get to it in a few moments. Bear with me. But if I asked you the question, who wrote First and Second Thessalonians? Who wrote these letters to this church in Thessalonica? If you said Paul, you'd only be partly correct. Three men put their name at the start of the letter as authors of the letter. We just only always remember Paul, perhaps, probably because he wrote the bulk of it. But he did it in partnership. Because partnership is a biblical principle and a good thing. And from a practical standpoint, a culture of leadership based in partnership will keep me and this church healthy. I might not be your favorite pastor. I'm not my own favorite pastor, just for what it's worth. I know it sounds weird to say that. I'd rather go to the church where a few of my favorite pastors are the pastor. And I can just sit there. I wouldn't just sit there. But, but I know that our church is more healthy now than it would have been with Jason and I in a co-pastor model sharing things than had we just had one senior leader for seven years leave. And so I am jealous for us that at this critical moment, we make decisions that set us up as a church for health, not just tomorrow, but for the future. I don't know when and I would ever leave, but it might happen someday. It's not going to be this next year that I know of. (laughs) But I do want us to make decisions that would make us healthy. And I think partnership in some way, shape, or form will do that. So what does it mean practically? That's what you're probably wondering. It's my hope that I would anchor the preaching ministry here at our church, preaching two to three times a month. So what that might mean is 35, 40 times a year. Um, Also, we've said this the last few weeks, but I'll just say it again. The leaders of our church have presented to you, our church membership, the desire that we would um, affirm Ben Bechtel as a pastor elder of our church. So my name is Benjamin Another guy named Ben at our church and the drummer who's not in there right now. I don't know where he's at. His, and there he goes. Your name is also Ben. I don't know why this is. We're doing. So are there any other Bens here that want to move into leadership here at the church? Um, but Ben Bechtel has been here four years at our church, almost in September. It'll be four years. He has done a fantastic job as the director of youth and music ministries at our church. And we would love to promote him and give him more opportunities to preach and teach among adults here at the church. So rather than preaching maybe three times a year, it might look like 12. Now, what does that mean for his other roles, youth youth and music? Both of those are very important to us here at a church. We want to see those continue to thrive. 
But we know that giving Ben more responsibility, as well as continuing to finish his seminary degree, which is all the way, the school's all the way in Philly, he commutes back and forth. We know we can't just add things without changing the way those other two are done. We don't have all of those details figured out yet, because what, how his role changes and how my role changes has a cascading effect at who we might hire, and we are working that out right now. We would just ask for your prayers um, in that area. What I can say is as we change things, none of it will happen quickly. He'll continue to do youth and music through the summer, through the fall, and on into the winter. The only difference will be is that you'll just notice both of us preaching more in different ratios, so to speak. Well, so let me just flip my page. I just kept going here. I've looked at this so much. I wanted to (laughs) just be able to say it from the heart and not stare at this. The The final thing I would just say is that we would love for you to be praying with us. Um, every Tuesday in July, so the next four Tuesdays in July in the cafe just down the corner here uh, through the hallway, um, anybody that wants to can gather with us. I will be there uh, each time once I get sick or something weird happens. I'll be in there um, to pray. We'll probably pray that middle half hour, one to two, or excuse me, uh, 12 to one. Um, we know people you know, might get an hour lunch break, so those first and second 15 minutes, we'll just talk about what's happening here at the church, try and answer any questions. But that middle half hour, we're going to be praying for our church. And uh, a few of us are going to be fasting and praying. So in a biblical context, fasting and praying when they go together, what that simply means um, is using our hunger pains as a reminder uh, throughout the day to say, Lord, I'm really hungry right now. But more than being hungry for food, I'm hungry to see your gospel go forward here at this church. That people would be helped and changed and blessed and that our community uh, would come to know Jesus in a helpful way. So that's what we're going to be praying. And whether you come to a church um, in the cafe at 12 to do that, just be praying wherever you're at. We need that. And speaking of prayer, the day that Jason told me in the afternoon uh, that he was leaving, that morning... Just in the, kind of in the quietness of a Thursday morning in the office, I was just praying for our church. And the thing I was praying is that more would be done here at this church than could be done in mere human effort. That's really what I want for our church. More would be done here than more than could be equated to just human ingenuity or effort or skills and gifts and passions but really that God would be working among us. And that was my prayer then, and it's still my prayer now. And that might be the longest non-sermon introduction I've ever given (laughs) until I give it again next week for all the people that weren't here. So I'm going to turn our attention now to 1 Thessalonians for a shorter sermon, (laughs) short-ish. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we've been away for a few weeks, but we're going to go back to it now. So chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 17. So chapters, numbers are the big numbers. The verses are the smaller little numbers in your Bible. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. And it's weird for us to read a passage across a chapter break. Normally we divide it up the same way the chapters are, but in this case, it all goes together. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along right there in your lap or on your phone, or it'll be on the screen. Here is what Paul and Timothy and Silvanus wrote to the church in Thessalonica. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, 
We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as, excuse me, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you pray with me as we look at it closer? Heavenly Father, we sang prayerfully earlier that we need you every hour. And there are moments in our lives as individuals, and there are moments in our lives as a church where we feel our need more acutely. It's always there. But there are times we feel it more acutely. But Lord, I'm thankful that though we need you every hour, we have you every hour. Your posture towards your children because of Jesus Christ is that of love. And I pray now as we study your word that you encourage our hearts in faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've hardly mentioned this at church before. But some of you know that I enjoy writing things. I spend a lot of time kind of in the early morning hours before kids get up and sometimes after they get up, uh, playing with words on a screen. And in the spring, I had a book published to help men struggle not with pornography, but against it. Don't worry, this will not be a sermon about pornography, although maybe that would be helpful at some point. I'm not going to be preaching about this this morning. But I bring it up to say that in the process of writing the book, Someone said, well, you should get someone to write a foreword. So I'm like, well, I guess I got to get someone to write a foreword. So I, try, I reached out to a number of people, finally found one person. And I thought, oh, this would be a great person. So I send emails, will you please write a foreword for my book? And then I start looking on Instagram. The person, person says, yeah, maybe I'd do that. Like, what does maybe mean? But I don't know. And then I start looking on Instagram, and the dude is traveling all over the world. I'm like, he's not going to have any time for me. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Um, and then um, I found out, though he's a professional writer, um, he has, it wasn't carpal tunnel syndrome exactly, but his wrists were in such severe pain that every time he typed a blog post, he was like in severe pain. And here I am like saying, will you please read my book, mister, and write something, <laughs> even though you're in severe pain? So I thought, oh man, I'm, this is a bad idea. In the end, he wasn't able to do it. He did write a couple nice sentences about the book, and we put them at the front, but I bring that up to say, the entire time I felt like I was annoying him. Um, Now there's nothing in like his emails that indicated you are annoying me. Like nothing ever said, in fact, he actually was the opposite. He he seemed to be excited and and rooting for it. But when the book came out, I sent him a copy and said, hey, thank you so much. here's, Here's a copy of the book. Appreciate your help. There was like silence. And I thought, well, 
there you go. I was totally just annoying him the whole time. He really doesn't like me. And then the, the, the writer angst in me. I'm burying my soul. You just smile at me, please. Um, and so then I, 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 I'm like, well, he really doesn't like me. I don't know. What do I want to do? I feel like I was in middle school again. And then, and then he put something on his website and he, uh, quoting the book. I was like, well, maybe he does like Anyway, why am I saying any of this? You're wondering that. I know, I can see it in your faces. I'm saying it because when we only have a few details of a situation, we often make up what is the true story. And the true story as we would craft things is often a projection of our fears and often the least charitable view of a situation. I think that's what I was doing. And one of the reasons I just spent 15 minutes talking about the transition at our church is so that I could give you as much of the situation as possible so that you wouldn't be doing that very same thing. But the real question to ask is what does that have to do with anything to do with Thessalonica in this letter Paul and others wrote? Actually quite a bit. Thessalonica was a large port city in the capital of Macedonia. It's in the country of Greece today. Think of Thessalonica like Boston or Baltimore, big modern port cities. Paul had been with them. He had instructed them in the gospel, the good news of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And now Paul was absent from them. I mean, he had been there and he had seen the way the gospel had changed them. These were young believers and they're, they're first learning about Jesus and they're getting excited about things. But then the mission took Paul away. And now it seems like he might have even promised that he was going to get back there. And then in the words of our passage, it seems like Satan's even preventing him from getting back there. And so there's these believers in Thessalonica. They can't text, they can't email, they can't look on Instagram and figure out what Paul's up to. And they don't know what's going on. Not to mention, that in chapter 2, these other believers, perhaps that most likely they weren't believers, come in and they're discrediting Paul. They're throwing him under the bus. The dude left you because he doesn't care. Not only that, he just wanted your money. So what's the story these Thessalonican believers, Thessalonians would have been making up? Perhaps they were wondering, did Paul really like us? More importantly, does God really love us? Is this Jesus person real? Does he matter? Is he coming again? And so Paul writes this letter to them. And in every chapter of all eight chapters in both letters together, five and three, Paul reminds them of the second coming of the Lord. He is coming back. And in this section of the letter in particular, he reminds them of his love for them. I titled the sermon, Friends, How Goes the War? Because these believers are Paul's comrades. They're his friends. And he cares about them deeply. So let me just go back very briefly through the letter, in this portion of the letter in little sections and show you where I'm getting all of that. Look with me again at verses 17 and 18. Here we read, But since we, note we, partnership, We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. So he's like, okay, physically we were separated from you, but in heart and spirit, we still wanted to be there with you. We're like, we're one. We're doing the same thing. We care about you. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Even me, I, Paul, again and again, 
But Satan hindered us. So that verse, that phrase there, torn away, is literally the word for orphaned. Earlier in chapter 2, and I know it's been three weeks, but Paul was speaking of the church in parental language. He said that he was tender with them, like a, like a mother would be with her child she was nursing. That's verse 7 of chapter 2. And he said he was also like a father with them, encouraging, exhorting them to follow Jesus, verse 11. And I just used the metaphor of like fellow soldiers in a war, friends, how goes the war? But really the metaphor probably better is of a parent sending a child off to war. Like you raise the child, you love the child, um, and then all of a sudden you send them off to the army or the military or wherever they're, and you're like, they're gone and you don't know where they're at. There's all sorts of fears associated with that. Some of you in the fall are going to send a son or daughter off to college and you'll have those same fears, though not exactly, maybe that of going to war. Paul has those fears for this church. Of course, they don't have the modern means of communication we even have now. Let's keep going, verses 19 and 20. Then Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy excuse me, hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? Implied answer, yes, for you are our glory and joy. Here we see Paul's parental pride on display again. When I say parental pride, perhaps some of you have envisioned, like at least this is what comes to my mind, like the minivan with the bumper sticker that says, you know, I'm proud that my son or daughter is on the, you know, the honor roll, Right? Then you have the competing bumper sticker that's like a, a Jeep or a Ford F-250 you know, that says, my son or daughter can beat up your son or daughter on the honor roll, right? I'm projecting here stereotypes, but it's all very Christian. Um, I don't think that's the kind of pride Paul's talking about here necessarily. I, don't, I mean, when the Bible's speaking about pride and boasting, most often it's critiquing that and moving us towards humility in the gospel, which is really the only right posture of our hearts as humans before a holy God. But I think the pride and the boasting that Paul's talking about here is, is something different. It's a good type of thing. Paul mentions that he does his boasting, or will do his boasting, at the return of Christ in his very presence. If Paul's boasting were a bad kind of boasting and pride, he certainly wouldn't be talking about doing it with pride in the presence of Jesus when he comes again. But what Paul loved about them was what God was doing among them by the power of the gospel. Therefore, Paul's boasting in these believers and his glorying in them was in a deeper way a boasting and glorying in God. God was the one who had done a work among them. And taking joy in them was really a way for Paul to take joy in God. For Paul to feel this way, he must have intentionally chosen to overlook their sins and immaturity. Paul hates sin, their sin, any sin, just like God does. In just a few weeks, we'll get into chapter 4 where Paul is going to call these believers and call us into deeper relationship with God that produces holiness and purity. But in the presence of God, Paul is choosing to love what God loves about them, which is the way the gospel is changing them. In other words, he loved this church not because they were perfect, no churches, but he loved this church because God loved it. 
And maybe I could just pause and ask, what do you think of community church? I mean, some of you are new. I'm not talking about you. But I'm talking to those who have been here a year or so. And especially to those of you who are members of the church. Do you begrudgingly gather with God's people week in, week out, mostly seeing our shortcomings? Or do you choose to focus on what a wonderful thing it is that the gospel is alive and well among us? Changing lives. Paul's not just saying what he's saying here because it's true. It is true. He does care about them and he needs them to know it. But as well, he's modeling for us as Christians how we should feel about our fellow Christians within a local church. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul continues. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. We're going to come back to that. Co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Paul cared so much about them that he sent Timothy, his co-worker. This is the same Timothy who, in a couple books of your Bible, if you're reading through the New Testament, um, Paul writes to Timothy two letters, first and second. Timothy, this young pastor, But he sends Timothy to go there and help. Apparently, well, so you can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 17. But apparently being left in uh, Athens alone was very challenging to Paul. When Paul was there, he needed Timothy's help. He needed partnership. And yet he also wanted to know how his spiritual children were, were carrying on. Are they pursuing Christ still? I want to point out one specific phrase in this section. In verse 2 we read, The phrase, God's co-worker. Timothy was Paul's co-worker. Timothy was Paul's co-worker. But that's not what he calls him. Paul wrote that Timothy was God's co-worker. Think how elevated of a title that is. An ordinary, sinful man who had been changed by the good news of Jesus, who is now just doing the best he could, to honor the Lord doing gospel ministry. He's not simply called a co-worker with Paul, but with God. That's amazing. As you serve the Lord here at community, you're not simply on the finance team or an usher or a nursery worker or running the soundboard or playing the bass guitar. You're partnering with God. Like, that's amazing. There are things that the Bible says that we would be, that would feel too arrogant to say of ourselves if the Bible didn't say them for us. In the English Standard Version uh, study Bible, it's a resource I use all the time. If you don't have a study Bible, it's just God's words are at the top and then helpful words written by people are at the bottom. That's what a study Bible is. So in, in that um, version, the English Standard Version, there's a section in here I kind of chuckled at this week on that phrase. It goes like this. The author wrote, God's co-worker. It's a remarkably lofty title. And Paul seems to be highlighting Timothy's credentials to offset any negative sentiment on the part of the Thessalonians at Paul sending his junior associate to them instead of coming himself. Maybe it's just me as a pastor, I chuckled at that more than you do. How contemporary is that? Seriously. 
As we move forward here as a church, we are going to have to fight this. Now, I'm not trying to say I'm the Apostle Paul. Please don't hear that. But it is worth mentioning that if this church expects me to do everything and be everywhere after this transition, that I, I will do it for like six months. Then I'm going to fall over and you're going to have to get a new pastor. The call of God on this church to follow God and love God and work among a community that is helping others to follow God is way too big of a calling for just a handful of people to do it. And so you need to be saying in your heart right now, Lord, help me to appreciate the ministry I receive from everyone at this church, whether it's from the senior pastor or not. And you also need to be saying, Lord, help me to do ministry at this church, whether I'm an official leader or not. Help me to receive ministry from everyone and help me to share ministry with everyone. That's what Christians do. Finally, let me read verses four, 3, 4, and 5. It actually picks up at the end of chapter, or verse 2 just to carry the sentence forward. So Timothy is sent, Paul writes, to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. I think referring back to afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And we're going to talk about that tempting and Satan a little bit more next week because the answer to Paul's statements here really comes in the next section. But for Paul and the other apostles, When they labored among a group of people so that they would come to know Jesus, they also told these Christians that they should also expect to suffer affliction as they fathered Jesus. Discipleship 101 meant teaching others that following Jesus meant also experiencing hard times. In the book of Acts, it's, it's around chapter 17 that Paul goes to Thessalonica. But back in chapter 14, he had already visited some church. And he and another group of believers went back to the churches there in chapter 14. And he says, hey, you know what we should tell them? Let's tell them everything we're telling everybody else, which is through many tribulations we come into the kingdom of God. Like that's just what we tell people when they become Christians. This is hard. Discipleship 101. Christianity shouldn't be marketed as simply a best a way to have your best life now. There's no bait and switch. I mean, yes, Christianity offers a life of deep joy and glory and wonder and meaning and purpose. Paul uses in this passage glory and joy and boasting. These are happy uh, languages of happiness and joy. That's because coming into relationship with the God of the universe can't be boring. But it can also be difficult. I suppose we should say that a person's never really ready, ready to suffer. Like you're never ready, ready for that. No one's ready, ready to run a marathon. You just, you're just more prepared or less prepared. You're never really ready to get married. You're never really ready to have children. But you can be unprepared, right? You understand what I'm saying? We're never really ready for hard times and suffering. But we can be unprepared. 
One of the reasons we gather each week to hear from God's word, to study his character, to know his love in a deeper way, and to sing songs that magnify the person and work of God is to prepare us to suffer. I don't know whether you think that should become our new marketing, right? We got the new transition here, the new campaign, right? Come to community church to learn how to suffer well, right? Let me just get some billboards, up 83. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but I can tell you as a pastor, it's never too far from my mind. As I'm laboring over the scriptures and pastoring this church, I want to, we're never going to be ready, ready, but I don't want us to be unprepared, It's one of the reasons we sing a song like um, A Mighty Fortress, written in the 1500s, in German, I think, translated into English, which is why some of that language may have been foreign, but we sing it for lines like, though the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. It's common in TV shows to end with cliffhangers. <laughs> Those moments of rising tension, left unresolved. You're like, what's going to happen? I have to wait a whole week. No, you don't. You're just watching it on next Netflix probably. You can do what my wife and I do, which is watch the next five minutes of the show and then go to bed. So you can absolve the, the, the tension. But this passage here ends with a cliffhanger. At the end of verse 5, Paul has sent Timothy, but we don't know what's going to happen. Like, what's Timothy going to find when he gets to Thessalonica? Are these believers carrying on in their faith? Was the work and ministry that Paul had done among them in vain, as he feared it might have been? Well, you'll have to come back next week. (laughs) Or you can just read verse 6, 7, and so on, and find out in the meantime. But when we come back next week, that's where we'll pick up. invite you to pray with me as the worship team comes back up to close us in one more song. Heavenly Father, I take encouragement from Paul's letters that sometimes (laughs) they're just a pastoral mashup of a number of helpful things that need to be said because the church had things that were happening that needed to be addressed. I feel like this weekend and this sermon, um, for lack of a better word, was just one of those weeks where it was just a mashup of a number of helpful things that needed to be said. But Lord, I pray that as we confess our need for you, that you would encourage all of us that we have you every hour when we have your son, Jesus Christ, through faith. Strengthen us for this season of transition. Build us up as a church. May we be humbled in the process, but at the same time strengthened because we find our strength, not in the mirror, but in you. We pray this in Christ's name.